0: Welcome to season four of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because this is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I'm therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. This week, I'm learning from Jim Young, who is a burnout coach, author, comedian, And dad of three. His new book, Expansive Intimacy, leverages the emotional intelligence we need in the workplace, allowing dads to form deep connections and show up in more ways as a caring human, as well as a competent CEO. Jim uses humor in his posts, as well as his formal work with corporations, employing improv comedy as a way to elicit authentic and playful interactions in safe spaces. Jim wanted to be a nurturing dad, but could not find the time and support to do that in corporate America. His burnout journey led him to define success in a different way by the depth of his connections. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did.
1: My name is Jim Young. I'm a father of three kids. I'm actually a father of three teenagers. So that's a little extra brave, perhaps more challenges in the world. I have a 14 year old. Daughter who's a freshman in high school. I've got a 17 year old son who's a senior in high school. And I have a 19 year old who is non binary and is a sophomore in college. And they're my three favorite people in the world. I'm partnered, I'm repartnered. I've been divorced for about nine years. And I have a, a partner in my life who I've been with for the last couple of years who is just a light in my life. And When I'm not focused on those things or some of the other fun things in my life, I work as a coach. I'm a self-employed coach for executives, for men with burnout in particular. And I also do facilitation work in organizations, working on things like emotional intelligence, equity and inclusion, and organizational burnout.
0: And also, Jim, newly fledged author.
1: That is correct. Thank you. I'm still freshly minted. I forgot to even mention it. I'm an author of a book that is just out called Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. You made me think of one other thing that I didn't mention is that I can also call myself a professional improv comedian because a couple of years ago, I actually had to pay taxes for the number of dollars that I earned for doing live shows. That's one of my joys in life is to get up on stage once a month and do a live improvised comedy show with my teammates.
0: I'm so impressed by that, actually getting paid to do your comedy because I've done some stand-up and improv and I absolutely love it. And actually, it was such an important part of my burnout journey. So maybe let's start there. We'll get to a little bit more of how you got to the situation you are in terms of your role in your family. But let's talk a little bit about your own burnout journey and your road to recovery or road to continued management of burnout. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I like that. It is oftentimes continued management. For me, my burnout journey probably starts when I was nine years old. And I write about this in my book about this moment when I was bestowed the man of the house mantle by my mom, who had a live in boyfriend who she had kicked out because he was abusive and difficult. And she had said to me one night after this had happened that it was trash night and it was time for me to take out the trash because I was man of the house. And I was scared and didn't really know what to do, but I didn't have a voice for that. Instead, I said, okay, that's what I'll do. And in the man up culture that we're in, that's, I think I maybe even was aware of that subconsciously at that time. I just did it. And that metaphor really has played out for a long time for me. And that's what led me into burnout was this notion that I just had to do it no matter what the circumstances were. I had to be tough. I had to not ask for help or reveal what my feelings were and just do it. And that that carried through my adolescent years, my adult years into the working world until I really reached a point in my forties when it
0: became unbearable and I collapsed under its weight. And I think that part of that is that idea of taking your responsibilities seriously, which again has a plus side. I love when people do, and I certainly do. But to the point where it is, you feel like you have the world on your shoulders. And as we talked just briefly before we got on, I'm trying to approach this podcast a little more lightly with a lighter touch, because again, I can take everything very seriously. And those responsibilities, they weigh on me instead of energize me. And I remember even that with one of my students, as she was graduating her PhD, we're at her PhD party, and her grandmother came over to me and said, thank you so much. You have done so much for my granddaughter. And instead of seeing the joy in that, I was like, oh my God, now I've got grandmothers to answer to too. And so you get into this sort of mindset of everything becomes a burden. So tell us a little bit more about the kind of event that changed things for you then. I'm not sure it was a singular event. For me, my burnout
1: was, and I described this in the book as well, that it was really a a series of probably thousands of decisions over several years that got me to this point of depletion where I was recently divorced. I was in a startup organization that was trying to grow to a next stage. I kept rising up the ladder in that, which was the dream, right? That was what I was supposed to do. That was the model of success that I had taken in from the culture And I just kept working harder and harder. Tons of client responsibilities, tons of employee responsibilities, being an executive, trying to learn how to be a single dad. And I just literally hit a wall. One day I walked into my CEO's office and I said, I have to go. I have to not come to work for a while. I don't care if you pay me or not. And I took a month long leave for my own mental health. And I didn't know that it was burnout. I just knew that I was falling apart. I would collapse on the floor in tears when I was at home at the end of the day, exhausted. And I knew I couldn't do that. I knew it was going to end badly if I continued trying to go down
0: that path. And thanks for describing some of those symptoms. And again, we don't know that we're going through burnout. I didn't really realize that till several years later. But again, also experienced that tears on the way to work, tears on the way home. And I ended up taking a three-month leave of absence. But I think in that time. I was able to at least reset my fight flight system so that I managed my stress and wasn't as though everything was a complete threat to me. But then when I went back to work, the stress hit me like a truck because I actually had never experienced it before. I had boiled very slowly in the pot and also did loads of stress management anyway already. What was your experience then when you did go back to work and what other strategies have you used in your burnout recovery? When
1: I heard you say you took three months, I immediately was brought into this space of, oh, that would have been great. (laughs) A month was not enough. And interestingly, I came back into a, a big meeting in my organization the last week of that month. I was still on mental health leave, but there was this big meeting of our executive committee around a reorganization of the company. And it was an all day meeting, it was so draining it would have been draining under normal circumstances, but I was still recovering. And in the course of that meeting, I got promoted to be the president of the company while I was on leave for burnout. And so I came back into a higher pressure job and I was like, I won, I did it. I got the job, I grabbed the golden ring. This was the job I'd been aiming for years for probably most of my career. And so I was like, cool, let's go. And I wrote adrenaline. I think for a few months. And then I realized that I was not healed. And it took me another several months of hanging on, trying to battle what was going on in a really high pressured organization. And just with where I was at in life before, I didn't last a full year. I said, I need to resign. I need to go find something else. There was an interim step between where I am today and that job. I took another job that was a stepped down a little bit energetically, still in a burnout culture, and eventually realized that what I needed was something very different. Really the core of it was I needed to stop trying to fit my life into my work schedule and rather invert that and say, my work has to fit into my life schedule so that I can be a good parent and I can have social connection and I can have partnership and I can have rest and all of those. So my strategies were connections and deprioritizing work as the number one, two, three and four priorities.
0: And just to ask, since you're now a coach, did you consider coaching during that time as a solution?
1: I actually had some coaching when I was in that president role. I was the first time I was even aware of coaching as a profession. And I had somebody who was actually a trained psychologist who was brought in as an organizational coach. And the sessions that I had with him were probably what kept me in that role for as long as I was. It was what was keeping me sane was having a place to talk about what was going on in my life, as well as what was going on at work and all these places I felt pinched. Uh, So it it wasn't something that I considered at the time. Uh, In fact, it took me another year and a half and a An odd set of events for me to actually discover that, oh, coaching is a thing I could do.
0: That's great. And I think so many people do discover it from these journeys because they see how beneficial it can be for themselves. You also mentioned the burnout culture in the organizations you were working in. And I think so often people think of burnout as an individual person's inability to manage their own stress versus actually saying, no, this is something, yes, as individuals, we bring personalities that might be at higher risk, ambitions that might make us at higher risk, family situations that put more strain upon us. But there are also conditions in the workplace that lead to burnout. So can you describe some of those? yeah, and I'll try not to reference the post you put up this morning that was brilliant
1: about organizational tenets that I love. For me in my own experience, it was being in organizations where there was no recognition of what people's needs were. There was no conversation about it, and there wasn't room. It was everybody had to follow the same model of work. And it was sixty hours a week, full engagement was the way to prove your medal. And for me is, my own experience as a man in the culture was achievement was such a big part of it. And I know that's true for a lot of men that I've worked with. And a lot of my peers was that the performer, perhaps I think it is a big piece of that in the culture is that we elevate work and the accomplishments and the status and the roles and the salaries to such a high degree. And then we don't allow people to talk about when they're struggling and because that becomes a sign of weakness. And now I can't succeed. And the model of success to me is just way too narrow and doesn't allow room for us to thrive as humans.
0: And yes, interestingly, you're saying that might be one of the male presentations of burnout, because certainly what I see is the majority of our CEOs are white men, and that's their model of burnout is this individual performance, pressure, stress, very much that provider, don't ask for help, really a very driven strength-based form that leads to burnout. But I think that's where there's this mismatch that studies like Deloitte have showed us where where is caring and communicating around vacations and stress management versus actually all the other types of burnout that can present and potentially present in men too. But I particularly see different presentations in women in terms of, again, and men can have these attributes to being the people pleaser or the perfectionist, um, having your work devalued, being marginalized. Like you mentioned, you do some diversity equity inclusion work as well. And then also depending on how far along you are, because you can be burned out, but able to manage it with some short-term management strategies, or you can be like you and I were where, hold on, (laughs) this is fight flight time. We gotta go. (laughs) And for some people that then turns into medical issues at that stage as well. So I think it's really important for us to understand these, these different types and put your hand up as well as the people pleaser. It can come out in genders and groups.
1: I also want to clarify something that I just said, especially around gender, as I've mentioned, my experience as a man a couple of times, and the impact of burnout on men, because that's what I've studied. And that's my lived experience. And what I think, I think the broader lens is that, and I know this is true, these same things are happening for women or people who don't identify as male or female. And it's really patriarchal culture, which has gone on for eons. And we're all suffering under the patriarchy. It's not that men have it easier under the patriarchy necessarily. Yes, more privilege, but the conditions are harsh for everyone. So I just, I wanted to clarify that a little bit more maybe for listeners that I see this is not a male versus female issue by any stretch. It's a system issue that we're all suffering in different ways based on our personalities and our gender is one factor in that based on the expectations we're given.
0: Because those stereotypes persist, exactly. But I think, again, for me, it's that who is making the decisions about what burnout solutions can be? And if they're basing those decisions on their own experience, where is that coming from? And is it matching the people that are also then struggling with burnout in their organizations? So I think that's part of it. I hadn't thought about this facet
1: of my own burnout story until just now is that the organization I was in and all the organizations prior to that, when I reached burnout was run by a white man who was inculturated in that experience. And a, a very important part of my burnout is that I didn't know how to be an effective parent. I didn't know how to be the nurturer that I wanted to be for my kids with those demands. And it wasn't a conversation I felt like I could have. I just had to figure out how to fit my stuff around my job, or my parenting around my work. And that's typically a feminine trait. We think of mothers are going to be the ones who care for the kids or be the nurturers. And we need to look at it both ways. Men want to be nurturers in many cases, not all. And that condition definitely was a piece of my burnout. It was personal and professional burnout.
0: And I think, like you say, that's so important. You were feeling this drive to nurture and be the parent you wanted to be, but you weren't going to be able to have those conversations (laughs) with the people in your organization because, again, that would have been such a stereotypical. And again, thanks to the research that's coming out around the fatherhood forfeit, the fathers who do either through, like you say, situations like divorce or other situations where they are wanting to actually have active participation in parenting, they're the ones that are getting the worst answers from the organizations because what they're doing is so also so stereotypical. But I think your journey to matches so much of my own in terms of one of the parts of when I started to dislike myself so much was when I became a parent. And I was basically an authoritarian parent because that's what I had been brought up to be. And I didn't like it. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know how else to parent because I hadn't seen anything else. But there was something, that cognitive dissonance, right? There was something in me that was going, I hate myself as a parent. And I can see that sort of yourself because then I was also experiencing parental burnout because I wasn't enjoying parenting and I still feel parenting is a challenge for me but I see the same. You had this urge to be a nurturing parent and you had these people-pleasing traits and those in this driven work environment. It's person environment fit, right? And then what that does to us internally when we have these just mismatches of what we'd love to do. But again, you don't even know what you're looking for in some ways. I didn't really understand that till it broke me, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of symmetry there. I didn't know the model that I was after. I just knew the one that I was in wasn't working.
0: Exactly, exactly. So let's talk a little bit more then about what role you do now play at work and home and how you got there. And what are the things that helped you along the way? And what are the things you're still struggling with?
1: Sure. One of them is actually a little bit of maybe a contrast to your parenting experience. I by nature, perhaps I'd say stroke of luck, but I think it's by nature. I loved being a parent from day one and I knew intuitively how to do it. And I love spending time with my kids. My deficit felt imposed because I have to be this provider. So when I was able to shift and made a big career change about five years ago, it allowed me to reshape what my roles are. And so Now, I only have my kids half the time. I'm very amicable with their co-parent, with their mom, and we split time with our kids 50-50, and we always have. And I love that last night I was at my son's soccer game that I had to leave the house at 4.30 to pick up my youngest and then get to his game. And today, as just as before this call started, I was like, hey, I have to take this text from my kid from school because they've got a transportation issue. And I love being able to be there for that and to... Cook meals with my oldest kid when they're home from college and goof around with them. And then also go do work that is important to me and feels purposeful. And the challenging part as an entrepreneur, the challenges of that, and it's a tough road to ride the ups and downs. I still hold a little bit of shame around. I'm not doing a big corporate job. I'm not earning tons of money. I should be doing better, right? The word should starts to come into my mind. I'm like, oh, here we go again. And I know that those are consequences of the choices that I made to have balance around doing purposeful work that I love, being around my kids, being available to my partner. And yeah, so I have the balance that I've always been seeking. And it's balancing, it's not balance. And so I'm always looking for how do I smooth it out a little bit? And I know it's always gonna be rough.
0: I think it's so important to talk about that shame as well, because suddenly when I was going through my crisis, I would read things like, what would you like people to say about you on your deathbed and in your obituary? And I was like, I want them to say I was a fantastic mom. I was a fantastic professor. I did life-changing research. So I looked at my life and said, this is actually the life that I think is so important and meaningful. I've got it but I can't do it. And so then to say, I can't do this and to leave it. And especially the ego side of losing my identity as a professor was extremely hard for me. To be able to look at it and go, why did you even think that was important? Was an important question, but it didn't mean that I, I didn't miss it for so long. And certainly I saw my experience as failure in many ways. I think shame is part of this. Because again, what society puts up as success are those type of corporate jobs, plus the security, the health benefits and retirement. As I was writing my book,
1: Expansive Intimacy, I Knew that was what I wanted to talk about in the book was I wanted to write how this notion of expansive intimacy, creating these trusting connections across all areas of your life to hold your stress and your celebrations and everything in between, but that was the antidote I had found for burnout. those were the two things I was going to write about. And as I was doing the writing and the research and interviewing people, I kept running into shame. And I was like, I don't want to write about shame. I'm not Brene Brown. I don't enjoy that. She probably doesn't enjoy it either, but she knew it was important. And and I'm inspired by her in, in many ways. And I said, okay, I have to write about shame. And that's such a barrier for us when we face something like burnout, because it's like, we're supposed to run through every wall and climb every mountain and we're not supposed to take a step back. And when we do, when we reveal any sign of weakness, perceived weakness, like here comes shame. And so just invites us into this loop of burnout. And similar to perfectionism, we use perfectionism to hide our shame. We outwork our shame as well. And it gets
0: us burned out. So can you describe a little bit more what expansive intimacy is?
1: Yeah, I found it a little bit by accident. I actually found it on the first date with my partner almost two years ago when she asked me, what is it that you want out of a relationship? And I said, I want a relationship that's expansively intimate. And the words fell out of my mouth. And then I started to unpack them. We've had a lot of conversations about them. And I ended up doing a little video series about a month later on men's intimacy Because what I saw was that men have a struggle with intimacy. They define it, and our culture defines it very narrowly around sexual romantic relationships. And what I realized was that over the course of my previous few years, as I recovered from burnout, it was developing intimacy in a lot of different ways spiritual intimacy, intellectual intimacy, having conversations with people where I got stimulated about things I cared about, experiential intimacy, going up and doing stuff with people, physical, sexual. There's this whole panoply of intimacies that we get to explore with different types of people in our lives. So I can have intimate relationships with my kids and with my partner and with my ex-wife and with my colleagues and with my friends. And now I have this huge container where when I'm having a challenge or something, I can go to an appropriate person who's open, available, trusting, wanting to support me because I support them too. It's a bi-directional relationship. And I realize, oh, this is a thing. And I don't know if it's been described, certainly not as an antidote to burnout. Because I think when we're in a space where we have all that intimacy in our lives, all that social, emotional connection that we trust, I don't think we can get into burnout because we have people who take care of us and who check in on us and hold us accountable to what we say we want and who can help us process things when they get really difficult.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. And I followed Reddy Brown and was so grateful because she described perfectionism. I was like, oh, that's what it is. Oh, it's me. I was like, I'm not a perfectionist. I never get anything right. So that was such a good lesson. And so I really embraced her vulnerability. And I talk about the experience I had and moving through suicide ideation, all these things. But it isn't always, how do I put this? I've definitely found that it hasn't always been a gateway to improving relationships. I definitely think with my husband and I expressing my emotions and expanding that was so important because he had no idea what I was going through. But I I haven't yet seen it necessarily work in a friendship in the right way, maybe because those friendships partly started when I wasn't that person. And so trying to leverage it in the right way cuz how you describe that there just sound like perfection to me i'd love a cup with people in it where i knew i could go to them and, and be myself and that they would come to me in those moments of difficulty too i absolutely want that it's interesting i don't think that's quite what it feels
1: like i think my experience of expansive intimacy is that it's perfectly messy and that's one of the beauties of it because my perfectionism runs deep and I'm allowed to be messy and not know the answer, not have it right, and get to work it out in dialogue with people. And something you said reminded me of a key detail for me, at least in my experience, that sounds similar to when I was my old self, I only knew how to be in certain kinds of relationships and have certain conversations. And I still have relationships with people from the before times. And they're pretty headline news kind of relationships. We don't go very deep. What I ended up doing and not by design. So I hope to make it more of a design that people can follow is to create, and it could be created within an existing relationship. I've found it easier as I've opened up, I've found more people who are already there and want to have that kind of connection. So my friendships have expanded so I have so many friends nowadays that I never had before who all are willing to run deep with me in one way or another and the old friends I still I have some old friends who I've been able to get into deeper conversations with and deeper relationships and some of them want to just stay where they were where we were and that's okay I have a range That i get to
0: play as i think about the friendships that have come anew yeah i could describe them in the same way and yeah they did come from that process of burning out and actually admitting what was going on
1: and i imagine those friends of yours that are newer were drawn to you for those things about you your open heart and the ways that you're wanting to improve your life and lives of others they're attracted to that and that's been my experience anyway
0: interesting So let's talk a little bit more then about your role when you help organizations and what you can see that organizations can do and leaders can do to help burnout, but also to help dads be able to play a role at home. The first thing that comes to
1: mind is organizations don't want to sign up right away to talk about things like intimacy feels like it's a non-work subject, right? Especially when we euphem- make it euphemistic, right? That it's about sex. No, we don't need sex in the workplace. It's <laughs> Not what we're talking about. So I don't approach from that angle. And this is actually something that is to me, part of the uh, recovery and prevention of burnout is talking about things like emotional intelligence, right? How do we create the openings for emotions to be part of the conversation? And in the corporate world, emotional intelligence has become accepted because there are studies that talk about emotional intelligence as the primary differentiator for great leaders. We want great leaders. We understand that that's a conversation to have. We'll even invest resources in that. And not going into organizations with that as a bait and switch. Now let me tell you about intimacy and how you can have dads play better roles in their homes. It's more integrated than that. It's when we do this, what do we now create? We create conditions where leaders are able to step back and let other people into the conversation where we can balance out assertiveness, or we can have emotional expression, all these things that emotional intelligence teaches us how to use and their skills we have. And I always want to then bring in, and these are skills that help you in life as well. They're going to help you have better conversations with your kids. That's going to make you a better dad. It's going to make you want to be more present at home. It's going to want to make you a better partner. And so I like to approach it more from the holistic standpoint. And I've found emotional intelligence is, it's just a a door that can be opened to get into those conversations.
0: And I think that's so important because a, a lot of fathers and, and mothers, we are emotional when we talk about our children. So if we actually let those emotions out, it's because again, that's what emotional intelligence is recognizing, allowing emotions, yes, managing them when appropriate. But it's again, admitting this thing is emotional, it's important. You
1: take the toughest of tough guys, the biggest, boldest CEO you can imagine, and you bring his daughter into the room and watch him change or his son. It's remarkable to then, be like, oh, there's this range of this person. It's not just this A-type, get it done kind of personality, that there's this other side. And how do we bring those more into balance so that people can see the humanity of each other and recognize that? that guy has a tough day every once in a while too, maybe more often than that. And how do we take care of each other? How do we bring empathy? It's one of the biggest emotional intelligence skills that I like to teach and bring into organizations. And the other thing that I think today, there's so much rightfully so conversations around E.I. And that's another place where emotional intelligence, bringing people into their full humanity, which means for some people, let me take a step back and be more of a dad than a CEO, for example. And let me trust that I have the people in my organization. I can create more equity where people get to step forward. I get to include more people in the
0: conversation. That's a great example of that sort of give and take that that can occur. The benefit of you stepping more into fatherhood is that you can also trust those other people in your organization. I'm
1: not working 60 hours a week. I'm just working 40. That other work will get done by somebody. And it might be somebody who is craving an opportunity
0: and isn't getting it exactly that's so important so I think another really important part of this especially where it intersects with DI is psychological safety so what are some of the ways that you develop that and do you do that through improv or is improv once you've actually got some other form of safety in there or can people actually like develop the safety because the improv allows them to tell me a little bit about that
1: Yeah, I actually just did a series of workshops for a Fortune 500 company around their leadership development program. They wanted me to come in and teach emotional intelligence and inclusive leadership. And I said, great, I love both of those topics. They're in core passions for me. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna do it through applied improv. We're gonna use these routines and exercises from the world of improv comedy in an applied setting. So to answer your question was, I had to create the container first. And I often do that by vulnerability, revealing some of my own story and what I've learned to make it feel safe, like nobody has to get it right. In fact, this is a way for us to practice low stakes, not having to get it right. So that when we get into high stakes situations, we know that it's okay to not get it right. But We also might have developed some skills along the way that we feel like we got it right. I guess whatever right is. But that's a lot of that safety is to say, you can go make mistakes. And one of the core principles that I bring in when I am creating agreements for a group like that is to assume goodwill. And I learned this from my good friend, Pam Victor, who's the head of happiness at Happier Valley Comedy, my primary improv teacher. And it's one of her core tenets in life is assume goodwill. When we're improvising, as you know, from your own experience, we're going without a net, and we might say something that steps on somebody's toes inadvertently. We don't know, We don't necessarily mean it, it's just what happened. And if we assume goodwill, that that person wasn't trying to harm me, then we start to build psychological safety that, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Let's talk about that a little bit. And honestly, We're all improvising all the time. So assume goodwill is always a good tenet to follow, in my opinion. So that's a little bit of how I try to do that. And and I think I generally have success. I get people laughing
0: and taking risks and learning along the way. That's great. Yes. Psychological safety is that safety to be able to make mistakes. And I think too with improv, because I definitely love that part about improv, you can like practice as an improv team and do things to improve your improv skills, but no improv situation ever presents itself in exactly the same way again. So there is never going to be the same scene ever. And that was so freeing to me when my teacher was like, there are no mistakes and there's no point in learning from them either because they won't happen again. (laughs) So you can learn some skills. But I think the other piece too, that I love about improv, that certainly from the style that I was learning was about very much just, if you stepped onto that stage, just do it with a conviction and then a presence of emotion. Don't try to be funny, just bring yourself and do it, do it big. You can build up as well. So you don't step on too big, but whatever you end up doing, you're moving into being the biggest form of whatever you choose to be. And that's what like being able to bring your whole self is. And so I think improv could definitely help with that side of building up to actually going, okay, and then here I
1: am. And here's all my emotions. One of the things I love most about improv is that it encourages authenticity. And that's maybe a paradox, right? You're pretending, to be something else, except when we do it from an authentic place, that's when the audience loves it. That's when our scene partners love it. And yeah, for me, it's so much of a practice of being authentic. What's my emotion in this moment? How do I recognize that? How do I accept somebody else's offer and be genuine about it? It's really great practice for me.
0: And the lack of control, the letting go of control, because you can give a gift to someone else and they can take it in whatever direction. And when you try to control how they do it, oh my goodness, they close the door even more on you. And that can be funny. But I think that was like my lesson from improv and then also from parenting was to let go, let everybody come to the table and build something together. And it's so much more enjoyable. And I definitely use improv with the kids. My son who's 14 now and he's on the autism spectrum and he does an improv comedy class and it's great. It's such a fantastic, safe way for him to be able to learn communication, learn to recognize people's gifts. And he's such a yes and in that situation. And I love it because certainly a part of his mental model is trying to control the overwhelm that he's feeling. But in that situation, you are practicing letting go of control.
1: Yeah, we're practicing that, practicing letting go of what I learned years ago is the illusion of control. And we're also doing it through play, which is so good for us. love bringing play into any circumstance that I can, because we enjoy it more. If we're learning something, if we're trying to accomplish something, can we bring an element to play into this? And when I do that with corporate audiences, they're a little hesitant at 1st i I'm not allowed to do that here. And then once we get going, the room just gets loud and you start, okay, cool. Now we're into it because people are really bringing themselves.
0: And that actually takes me back to a little challenge I remember having as a leader of a large group of researchers and staff and students. And we started to do much more lunches together and try to have fun activities together that we could go do to do team building. We did different types of team building activities. But I remember there was definitely some of the team that was resistant to it because they very much just wanted to get on with their work. And I remember reading how Bill Gates would say that, if you don't have time to do this, this is, this is part of work. But I think that is quite difficult to convey. And I think it also comes back to like burnout. If you tell someone to rest, whose self-worth is based on working very hard, then of course that message is not acceptable to them. So in the same way, how do you get over those folks that just don't want to be open to that? You know, that part of work is time spent with others in team building. That's a tough one because
1: I've never found a way to drag somebody Rather, it's creating an opening, something that feels inviting and giving an experience of it that I can start to see something different. And I've definitely facilitated events where there's a percentage of people who are just begrudgingly there and they're folding their arms and they're not really participating. And what I hope is that they get a glimmer. If they're not there yet. And I don't have judgment around it. I'm just like, you're not there yet for a lot of valid reasons, whatever your conditioning was, whatever your beliefs are. And I just want to create a space where you get to experience this and know that maybe it's not your time, but make it appealing. And again, on psychological safety, I would never want to force somebody into, Hey, I need you to have fun right now. If what you're feeling is I'm really mad at my employer and they made me come to this training that I didn't want to go to. And I should be back at my desk because I have all these prep, right? I don't want to force that person into any direction. They don't want. In fact, I want to honor what are they bringing to the room? What is their wisdom about what's going on? Cause there's something in there and I never want it to derail the experience for others as well. So like, as a facilitator that starts to get you, okay, now I'm, I'm really working to use all my skills to bring everybody in. Or just like for me, if you had said to me 10 years ago, That one of your mantras would be slow down and connect. I'd be like, are you crazy? I don't have time for that. And yet now that is one of the things that guides my life is, oh, if I slow down and I connect with myself, my emotions, my beliefs, if I connect with other people and other perspectives, I get there faster. And it took me years.
0: And I think that is so important. Your point about getting someone to a training and then them saying they've actually got a lot of things on their desk. Again, if employees don't give us room within our workload to be able to experience these things, then yeah, they are pointing to something really important in the organization. So I agree. What are they bringing? That is so important. Just to start to head to the end and wrap up here. I asked you if you could prepare a favorite dad joke, and particularly we've talked about some much humor today and the importance of it. So I definitely wanted to, as I say, keep these things light and also just remember that that they are so important to bring. So do you have a favorite dad joke?
1: This is a tricky question, Jacqueline, because oftentimes I'll tell dad jokes and people will say that they're childish. And I disagree. I think that my dad jokes are fully grown. <laughs> I don't get it. What's a dad joke? Or if they they groan right away, then you definitely know it was a dad joke.
0: And that's the thing in UK, you never point out the joke because you want it to be so subtle that then five minutes later, they're like, okay, is this irony or sarcasm or you're trying to work it out? And then I lived in Germany and there they would basically say, I'm going to tell you a joke. Here's the joke and here's why it's funny. So they prepared you to receive the joke. And that was like so shocking to me. And then I do find in the U.S. a little bit more, not the preparation for the joke, but the explanation of why it's funny afterwards, which to me, is okay.
1: Oh, I love doing that to my kids in particular. And they know right away what the joke was. And then I'll just continue to explain it. (laughs) And they secretly love it. They actually love it. Even though they're giving me all these, dad, stop. no. I roll all that stuff. Yeah.
0: Let's just finish that. You had so much important things to say during this time. And I really appreciate it. And it's quite a different perspective than I've heard before. And that we hear mostly each day, maybe just how people can start to operationalize this in their life. That might be a good way for us to end. And
1: thank you for opening up this conversation with me. I love that a dad gets to come on and talk on this podcast about burnout. It affects us all to wrap up what we talked about, what's coming to mind for me is that when we think about something as difficult as burnout and how it affects all of us in different ways, is that we need this whole array of strategies and they don't come always from within. In fact, a lot of times they come from without. And so expansive intimacy as a concept is really designed to say, how do we reach out and create these places where we have a big network, a big net underneath us for when life gets difficult.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com, for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself Who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and, like you, are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction. Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone, and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability and a quality improvement process that measures impact Through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The Peer Learning Collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem-solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A Peer Learning Collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan-do study-act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed, and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, ADECO, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix the person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there've been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity. With evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies, because change can be scary, and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health. Leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, Creating the conditions for a culture of change, using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity. Finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging, using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity. Understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, Burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.
2: Yo,